PD Pods present the Corona Cast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to an episode of the Corona Cast, and one we've been sort of gearing up towards over the past couple of months. We're now entering our third month of lockdown in the United Kingdom, and we have done 12 episodes so far tackling all sorts of different topics and cases. Uh, I'm very lucky to be joined by Mr. Fergal Monsell, who is a consultant paediatric orthopedic surgeon from the Royal Hospital of Children in Bristol. He is a board member of the BOA, chair of the Educational Committee of Biscos, and has been editor for the BOA's transient journal of trauma orthopedics and coronavirus since this really came upon us. He's also been very active in uh, webinars, as I'm sure some of you have seen, including the Doc Matter webinars hosted by the Orthopediatrics uh, team. And I felt it was really important to pick his brain about where we're going to be going in the next uh, few months or next year or so. How are we going to recover and resume essentially a new normal service? So, Mr. Monsell, thank you so much for joining me. Good evening. We're obviously now getting to a point where the government has decided to uh, reopen school for some age groups. Uh, a lot of us have been redeployed into different job roles over the past few months. And we, a lot of us have not spent much time in the operating theatre. Obviously, trauma has still uh, been going on. And we've seen around a 25% drop in trauma during the lockdown. But elective operating has you know, really been ceased for nearly three months now. And the BOA and NHS England have recently put out some guidance about how they feel we can restart non-urgent case management. In your department and in your experience with working with the BOA and NHS England, how do you feel in paediatric orthopedics specifically we're going to recommence our normal elective practice? I'm going to work cautiously because I don't think we understand fully what's ahead of us yet. Um, it was always going to be much, much more straightforward to close down than to start up. And I think we're really, we're, we're, we're all living that now. Is we're, we're sort of entering a, 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 an uneasy period in which it's all, the, all the mortality uh, figures are, are falling. Um, everyone's taking a sort of a sigh of relief and looking how to get back to work. But there's so many unknowns, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do that. And I think the, the, it, it's, a, it's a facile answer. We'll have to get back cautiously. Um, paediatrics is, is, is in a strange position in that the, the effects are quite different from adults. Someone who's got comorbidities looking at a joint replacement has got to think very, very carefully about whether that's the right thing for them, whereas the, the actual chances of, of a significant adverse event a COVID-related adverse event for a child is probably substantially smaller. The trouble is we don't know how much smaller. Um, the things that, that animate me are, are how are we going to convince the public that it's safe for their children to come back to hospital? Because until we get that out of the way, what we want to do is largely irrelevant. And I don't think we've got a very good strategy for that. For reasons I absolutely understand, there was a... a, a doomsday scenario that was put about two, two months ago to get everything closed down. It's going to take people quite a long time to be confident enough to actually walk into a hospital without, without 
some degree of trepidation. Then there's the staff. How are we going to get the staff back in the correct numbers to be able to staff operating theatres, uh, clinics, etc., and maintain social distancing, which is changing by the week? And so we've got a number of moving goalposts that we we really haven't haven't got any good feeling for yet. Now, to put that in context, in our institution, we have done virtually no, or we did virtually no elective operating up until a couple of weeks ago, and we've gradually started reintroducing some cases, um, some spine cases, uh, and we're thinking about how to do some of the general orthopedic cases. From the very beginning, we've been stratifying from day one, anticipating there was going to be a backlog. We've been collecting time-sensitive cases um, in, a, in, a, in a, a working order. When we get back to work, these are the cases we're going to do first. The problem with that is we're competing against other surgical specialties in the children's hospital and everyone's got their own order of priorities. So um, I, I haven't got an answer for you. That's why I'm, I'm using a lot of words to say very little. Um, it's, it's complex, it's confused. Um, and I think that the approach we're using, which is to start with a, with a particular sort of case, see how that works. Looks so spine cases are running at the moment. We're doing two spine cases a week, seeing where the traps are, seeing where the improvements need to be, seeing where the anxieties are, and then building onto that in a in a in a slow but sure way. And you know, I started off with that question because I knew it was uh, going to be a difficult one to answer. I've been in contact with colleagues from Brazil, U.S., Germany, Canada, just over the past couple of days, and all of them seem to have already begun. Um, restarting elective service and actually you know the clinical directors of all the orthopedic departments in the country have this uh, weekly zoom meeting and yeah. indeed there's a huge um, variation in what different trusts are doing some have completely restarted elective service some never actually stopped in yeah. its entirety anyway so we're in this very difficult situation uh, obviously it relies very much on the institution's infrastructure and uh, leadership I would have thought as well sort of getting back to normal but with regards to pediatric cases, I think we have a unique opportunity because they're all time sensitive because we have to think of time is growth and growth can potentiate uh, some problem. I, 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 I agree with you up to a point that there are two sorts of pediatric cases. There are those that are time sensitive and those that aren't. And, you know, working backwards, you know, an elective osteotomy for deformity in a static deformity is, is, is not time sensitive unless you want to use modulation, you know, growth modulation. So there are, there, there are a number of, okay, not everything. If you say everything's time sensitive, some things are substantially less time sensitive. Yeah. And when we, we um, put together the, the, the list with the BOA about the order of, um, or the timings for cases, we, we bore that in mind. And there was a cutoff at six. There's, I think the three month was anything, there were certain time-sensitive issues up to three months, but then there was a big lump. After that, it probably most of them weren't time-sensitive. Things like, again, the, the index cases are osteotomies for static deformity, metalware removal. Yeah, you can make cases for you know if you leave a metal uh, a plate in for five years, it will be buried. I know that there are caveats to everything, but in general, um, the other thing is 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 you know balancing risks against. Some of, the, some of the kids we look after are very, very sick. And now we're assuming 
that they are not at risk of COVID, but we've got nothing to base that on. And so subjecting a, you know, a, 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 a whole body involved child with cerebral palsy to bilateral hip operations when they may get significant chest complications, again, we, we, we haven't got a feeling for whether that's safe or sensible at this stage. Yes, and I've been calling all my neuromuscular patients just to see firstly how they're getting on at this time, but also explaining to them that I understand I listed you last year in the winter when we decided we would do it over the summer, and now we're approaching the summer and we're not going to be able to do it over that time period. And actually, they've all been uh, very, very you know, uh, happy about that, that with the honesty, but you know, the public's opinion is going to really be uh, very important about how we return to service. I, I agree, and we don't know what it is yet, nor do they know what it is. But I think you've touched on something very important. We've, from the very beginning, made sure that we've communicated with the families that we're looking after. And, and you know, there's no evidence, but it certainly seems that the parents of these kids are incredibly reassured that they've not been forgotten. And I think in the, in, in, in the chaos um, and confusion in the early stages of this, there was an anxiety that because you know, they, they had a disabled child, they'd be left behind in the, you know, when everything else was, was looking at you know, ventilating sick adults. And just the, a phone call or a teleconference to just, just to let them know that, that they were in your thoughts, I, th I think went an awful long way. And we did that consistently from day one. I think that was some of the best time I've spent in communication during the whole COVID thing was with those, you know, just reassuring I'd say non-clinical, they are clinical, but they're not direct clinical care consultations, just reassurance consultations. And we shouldn't underestimate that now or whilst this thing gets back together again. And it may be, you know, it may be months. And there may be, if, if I'm being pessimistic about, oh, not pessimistic, because it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we may not return to the practice we came from. Now, there's good and bad in that, but not everything that we did prior to COVID was either effective, sensible or safe. And if we are to learn anything for it, we have to learn which bits to continue and which bits never to return to. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's definitely defined our generation and essentially the future of our specialty. Because uh, even in if you think about a normal operating day, you may have got four to five cases done. Well, with the turnaround right now, that's probably not going to be the case. No. As you mentioned, you know, we have all risk stratified our patients that need surgery, but the likelihood is we're probably going to be starting off with the non-urgent day case surgery where there can be a quick turnaround before we really understand what the implications are on the service. And obviously there is this worry about the pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome related to SARS-CoV-2. And I think the most important thing I want to get across is there's been a couple of studies uh, from the UK and the Evelina Hospital showing that the vast majority of these did come from black and ethnic minority populations. So, you know, that is something that I'm considering and therefore helps us move on to our next topic, which is about consent. Yeah. When we talk about surgical consent from now on, uh, we, the, the parents and the patients are going to be looking up to us to give them answers and stratify their risk. But I don't know, unless you know from your work with Biscos and the BOA, what we are going to be able to tell them safely about that? Um, I, I know the answer because we don't have information. Um, Bertie Lee is um, a very, very fine legal mind, written an article 
for the temporary journal which is worth reading it's about that very topic it's about it's about um covid consent uh, responsibility um uh, it touches on all those points it raises questions rather than gives answers but it's a very thought-provoking piece um my take from it is is that we have got to spend a very substantial amount of time discussing these issues with the families that we're treating. Um, it was always the case post Montgomery that the sign on the day, you know, that that was that's historical. That was never going to be um, acceptable practice going forward. But add in the the issue of the unknown risk of of COVID in general, in paediatrics in particular, we aren't in a position, I don't believe I'm in a position to stratify that risk, but I've got to be candid about it. So I have to say, look, I, I don't know what the risk is. I, 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 you know, we can throw figures around that it is likely to be small, but it's not zero. And it, I think that we, we are going to have to acquire some agreed consent language for the immediate until we get decent figures um, uh, to allow us to do any sort of work at all and we had an issue in in our department it's not just what it's not it's not the child in front of you it's the whole family dynamic what if you bring a child into your hospital uh, with an adult who then acquires covid takes it back to an ice a vulnerable family member they have a bad outcome where does the chain of responsibility start or end we really don't know and so i think we are at this stage we're asking the questions but we don't have answers for them is this something we should be leaving to the anesthetists or getting guidance from their professional body no, i don't i don't i think it's my my view is very old-fashioned is you know i'm i'm making a deal with these people it's it's my responsibility and if I don't know, I have to find out. And I've been trying to find out for the last eight weeks and the information isn't there. So I'm in a position where I feel the responsibility, but I'm not in a position to discharge it. That makes me uncomfortable. And so I think, uh, not wanting to paraphrase uh, Mr. Lee's article, but I think you've just got to have a candid discussion. And you've got to, if you haven't got the information, you've got to outline where the, where the lack of clarity is. And then you've got, I don't think it's sufficient, I never have done so, to look at the family who, and say, well, so what do you think? I just don't, I'm slightly old fashioned about this. I don't think that's, that's fair, sensible or helpful. And so between you, you've got to come up with a deal. That's what we've always done. It's just the parameters have changed slightly. I always like discussing consent with you and we always have interesting conversations at meetings about consent. That's why yeah. I wanted to uh, talk about that one. So for me, um, it's a deal. You make a deal with these people. You look them in the eye, you shake them by the hands and you do your very best. Unfortunately, that won't keep you out of court. <laughs> correct. And, uh, you know, I think that's, there's going to be a lot more documentation and uh, guidance produced over the upcoming months, I'm sure, as we get more information. But we'll put um, Bertie Lee's article into the show notes of this episode yeah. if anyone wants to have a look at that. So obviously we've sort of started there at the beginning about, you know, the preamble consent and uh, meeting them. Obviously the BOA guidance currently is that we would advise that patients self-isolate or shield for 14 days. Now, again, in the pediatric setting, that is slightly different because 
it can't just be the child. It has to be the child with at least one parent, if not the whole family. How do you think that's going to work uh, with that? And is it a realistic expectation? Um, I don't think it's realistic. Um, I think it's a guideline. And I think that it is being interpreted in various ways in different parts of the country. But um, it, you know, it, to, to, to expect the family to, uh, to, to isolate for two weeks then, and then return a, a negative test 48 or so hours pr prior to surgery, attend, go through, you know, that, that, that you'll be doing single cases on lists, which is, if that's what it has to be, that's what it has to be, but there must be a more efficient way of doing it. I think that the rules will change as the epidemiology of this thing improves when we've got antibody, you know, we've, population antibody screening will be useful when we've got more rapid testing will be useful but at the moment we're sort of stabbing in the dark and i think that the the guidelines are being produced in a rather defensive way and not a particularly helpful way but we are there are guidelines but we are stuck with them that's the benchmark at the moment you know the the, the bottom line is is a patient should have isolated for two weeks um if 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 there is an advert again i'm not risk well i'm no more risk averse than anyone else but if there is an adverse outcome that is due to a protocol breach then there will be uh, there will be misery exactly. <laughs> is that opaque enough for you <laughs> yeah no and that sort of takes us on to then testing what are you and at your institution currently planning on for testing well that's changing by the week particularly because tomorrow i think is the new contact tracing law rules um I think if I needed to, I could get a test tomorrow in my institution and get the result back within 24 hours or thereabouts. And that will probably improve. I've not been tested at this stage because uh, yeah, I've had no clinical need to. But um, it's going to be very interesting because if, if, if you take the, ice, the track and trace to the letter, if someone in, say, an operating room subsequently develops symptoms, then everyone in that operating room is in out for two weeks. Now it's not going to take very long before the whole in, the whole hospital is self isolating, and it will be it will be a chaotic situation, which will mean that we will get no work done. Now, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But I think that's probably being overcautious. So there must be a middle ground which will allow people to be safe and also to continue working. But we don't know where it is yet. I'm sure that some of it will be down to better and more rapid testing so that you won't have to isolate you can get you, you can be tested um, and then either return a positive test and then properly isolate or a negative test to return to work I have reservations about how effective the next stage of the I have no doubt that the country has to unlock you know the the morbidity both the health morbidity, the economic morbidity is, is mounting up. And I think that any, whatever perspective you, you, you take, we have to start getting back to normal. But there's the risk of a second spike, which we're all trying to avoid. And some, somewhere, somewhere we've got to get productive and you know, not, not reactivate. I don't have the answer, but I, I, I have plenty of questions for your questions, but I don't have any cogent answers. <laughs>
And, you know, obviously the testing is not only for staff, but for patients as well. I mean, I yeah. personally have not been tested as of yet. You know, social distancing is, is impossible in a theatre setting. Yeah. But, you know, we're having to wear more PPE. But that takes us to the intraoperative setting and something that I've heard you mention before and I think is very important. We have not operated for the past three months yeah. effectively. I feel I'm going to be hugely de-skilled. I mean, that's a, a sizable percentage of my surgical career I've not suddenly been operating for. Yeah. And obviously with GERFT coming in, Mr. Hunter looking at, you know, how some operations should be dual consultant operating. Do you think that we should be starting off doing cases as dual consultant cases? Um, and where do you feel, how, how can we essentially retrain ourselves and upskill ourselves back to where we were just, you know, in February? Well, you're asking the wrong person because I've always been a massive advocate of dual consultant operating. Um, I, 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 different people, different departments will have a different um, threshold for what requires dual operating. But it is, it is anything that is remotely complex. If you have two thinking pairs of hands, it becomes a completely different experience. And so for me, taking COVID out of the equation, I think it is a very good way to practice surgery. Okay, Take, put the economic argument in, I, which I understand it doesn't look so attractive. But from a practical, from a professional, from an intellectual perspective, it is a very, very um, good way to practice. We, we, in our institution, we do that as a, as a routine. Um, I think that I've done three operations in in uh, seven weeks. One of them was was a manipulation. I've done two skin cutting operations in seven weeks, and so I am de-skilled. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, how magic you think your hands are. Is I will have lost muscle memory. I'll have lost decision making um, skills, and to think that you can just walk back in is, I think, naive. Now, one of the things that is an advantage uh, in paediatrics is you don't tend to do the same operation frequently anyway, so you're alert to that anyway. But if you're doing something that requires a, a, a very, very systematic approach to a procedure, you know, a hip arthroplasty, you know, every single part of that operation has to be done perfectly to get a good result. Um, I know most people, after they've been on leave for more than two weeks, start feeling a bit rusty. So amplify that by four or five times. I think that, that, that it would be unwise to do complex surgery without finding your range and having someone standing by your side. Now, where the line is, you know, whether that's a carpal tunnel, you know, some would say that's a, you know, to do that properly, that's technically demanding thing and you will lose those skills. Or whether it's, you know, a, a, a revision joint, that's not for me to, to advise. But I think we should be wary of the fact that we are not as good as we were two months ago. And I think that's something that we need to also talk about, about how that's translated into our trainees. Yeah. Our trainees have had... Um, a huge upsurge in, uh, you know, teaching, virtual teaching. And I think a lot of the deaneries around the country have made a really active uh, impact in, in setting that up. And, you know, I've been speaking on numerous ones, as I'm sure you have too. What can we do to uh, continue highlighting the importance of training our junior colleagues in performing surgery whilst not putting patient safety at risk in this sort of crossover time? Well... The, uh, the options aren't particularly attractive if you're a trainee, which is extending the period you train for because of 
what's happened recently. It's not because I want to punish anyone, but I want to make absolutely sure that no one is uh, under-trained when they start operating independently, because that is a very miserable place to be. Um, we were struggling even with pre-COVID capacity for people to get numbers up. So the inevitable consequence of COVID is that they're going to be struggling even more. So we can't invent the cases. We're not going to get back to operating very quickly. So the only other way to square that circle is to extend the time that you train. Now, whether that's uh, in fellowship, whether that's by uh, repeating the the in, in our uh, place, we're inviting people to repeat their six months, which has been taken up on by the, by the majority, which I think is very, it's a very fair way of doing it. But I'm very, very sympathetic to the, you know, there's a clock ticking. There are, there are any number of different um, conflicting imperatives to get through reasonably quickly. And that's been, yeah, that's been uh, affected by the lack of, COVID operating. So in answer to your question, although, you know, I'd expect to take a, 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 a kick in the shin for it, is you, if you can't do the cases now, you have to do them sometime. Yeah, and I feel the same. So I, expect hate, I expect hate mail. Please don't publish my, my, my postal address if that's, if that's okay. I don't, I, I don't want to disadvantage or punish anyone, but it, I just recognise that being in independent practice without the necessary skills is a very, very, very lonely place to be. Yeah. And the reason I ask you this is because, you know, you're, you know, the educational chair of committee, you've had big roles that, you know, not only BISCOS, but also the BOA. So you understand what it involves to train a junior to become an independently operating surgeon. And, you know, therefore you're in a unique position to offer your opinion on what you feel would be the best thing. Obviously, you know, there's official guidance with BOTA and JCST and there's lots of things going on. And obviously each individual rotation and TPD has their own way of managing their recruits at the time. But, you know, I completely agree. And it I'll was put it a different way for you. See, I think what I do, one of the things I have recognized is, is not, not one size does not fit all. And, you know, what, yeah, some people who some people may be virtually unaffected by what's um, happened in the last two or three months, but some people will be very obviously affected. I think it's it's being making sure that people who require more have access to it without it either actually or appearing to be a disadvantage. So I think people who are in training positions have to look out for extra needs of the people who are around them. And it won't be the same for everyone. Yeah. So I'm, being, I'm not raining back on everyone's going to do more time, but some people may, may wish to do more training and that should not be a disadvantage. Yeah. It's how you broker it because it is a very sensitive, very sensitive subject. And I hope that, you know, we put out early podcast episodes with the BOTA president, Trisha Campbell, and we suggested how people should be using their time despite being in COVID to sort of optimise their CV and, you know, engage with the ICP process and mm. involve themselves in learning opportunities and things that they may not have done before. So I'm hoping that most people have done that if they haven't been able to get that time clinically. See, the thing about that is, is you can do quite a lot of the paper side of things and you can you know, satisfy the, you know, the training requirements on paper, which then buys you time later 
to do practical basing. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, um, you know get, getting, you know, cases signed up, etc. You can then concentrate on, on, on some of the more practical aspects of orthopedic training. Let's talk about outpatients because um, obviously just like our surgical waiting lists, our outpatient list is going to be just as big. And obviously I've been personally risk stratifying them for my news and my routine and ones I need to see within a month and ones that can sort of wait with, you know, ingrown toenails, osteochondromas, wherever they may be. Um, but we're not going to be able to have packed waiting rooms because of social distancing now. So that's something that's also going to be affected. What do you think is the likelihood of embracing uh, the technology that we've started to use with, uh, you know, teleconferencing, and then we can talk about um, sort of face-to-face consultations. I think that there, you know, you'd be naive to, to not recognise the massive uh, advantage of using this, you know, this type of technology. But I think you'd be naive to think it will take over um, practice. So, you know, I, I, I try, I have to bite my tongue when I hear people say, oh, you know, the end of you know, face-to-face consultations over, blah, blah, blah. Because I think that's nonsense. I think that there is, uh, there's a personal side of, of medical practice, which is very, it's, uh, you know, it's an intimate thing. And yeah, especially when it's, it's either things are not going well, where you're making important decisions, you're dealing with bad news, that needs a face-to-face body language, time, independent consultation, which I haven't been able to repeat or repeat anything near it uh, in front of a camera. Now, I, now that's, that's one side, but equally, and this is nothing for me, 10 plus years ago, I tried very, very hard. It struck me because of our geography. I was getting kids with you know, whole body CP, coming to see me in clinic from Cornwall, you know, from Truro. So, you know, when they arrive, you know, they are just wiped out. They're chair-shaped because they've been in a car for five hours. And it is the biggest, you know, they've got family, they've got, they've got kids that should be in school, they've got physiotherapists as a whole, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, they're on tour. And I always thought that that is just such a big waste of everyone's time. But trying to get that sort of consultation done remotely at that point was impossible now it should be an absolute breeze so so i think you've got to you've got to be very uh, you've got to be very selective about why you do it and to, and with whom you do it um i think that things like routine um uh, post ops uh, scan results that, that can be done in front of a camera unless there is a twist which means that there's going to be a difficult discussion um you know, it's it's not just it, it, there's it's when we're doing you know consults, we have a great setup. You know, if there's bad news, I've got a, you know um, colleagues who 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 you know, will can just go and 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 dry the tears and clear up the wreckage. And you know, to to be able to do that or to, to not be able to do that because it's in front of a camera, I think misses the point. So I think we've got to be very intelligent about. There's no doubt that telemedicine as it should have been two decades ago, is now part of what we do. But I think we've got to be intelligent about how we utilise it to get the best out of it. Yeah, definitely. And, I think sort of remote medicine, as you mentioned, with sort of your muscular cases are 
a great way for families and they prefer it, but you need to have a very good working relationship with, let's say the physiotherapist. Yeah, yeah. You trust them and you have a good. So I did a, I did one, um, I did, I did a, a consult last week with a, 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 a meningococcal amputee and family from, you know, from over the water. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, in one of the channel islands and it was, it was, it was, so enormously straightforward you know it was it was you know and that saved them you're two days away from home mm. you know it just it was a camera everything we i don't think we would have got anything more by having face to face yeah so I'm a, uh, but it's again it's it's not it's not it's it's we've got to work out i think the easiest way is is the default is 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 who is not going to work for mm. And I think especially with new patients, you know, having that face-to-face consultation with them. And we are in a very tactile speciality for examination. It's very important to meet them, even if it's for the first time. But, you know, I've, as, I've, as you mentioned, I've been doing a lot of remote consultations over this period of time. And even if it's over the telephone, it's just checking in to see how yeah. they are. They, they tend to be very, very happy with that. But moving on to face-to-face consultations, um, I don't know what your experience has been, but mine has been... Uh, very different over the past few months, uh, examining children and speaking to children, uh, wearing a full PPE getup. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I, I've, I've found kids have been much, much happier when I've got a mask and a, and a visor on. They seem to be much more relaxed. And maybe it's something about me, but there we are. Now, I, I've got it. And uh, it depends. Um, it, it, it depends on the situation. I mean, most kids, um, you know, if, they, if, they're not, if they're not unwell, you know, it's just another thing. It's some some funny old bloke in a in a mask, and it doesn't seem to bother. Them. But when kids are sick, you know, if you've got a kid with a with a septic arthritis or suspected septic arthritis, you, you examine them. They're miserable. They're sick. You know, they they last thing they want to do is to be bothered. And then someone comes in with all the pantomime gear on. That doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done is I've I've tried to develop you know hands off. You know, I sit on the other end and I get mum to do. Most of the work, you know, it's you can do a lot by spending a bit of time. You know, you want to examine someone who's got a septic, you think has got a septic hip, well, you get mum to play with them and you stand in the corner and you watch. Yeah, it's old fair, you know, it's 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 uh, it's called you know, it's just observational medicine. We've been doing it for centuries, yeah. And we've we've done a couple of things in our clinic room, so we have this big trauma board with all the mechanisms of injury written up on the wall, and that usually acts as a very big icebreaker and come in yeah. and they say, Oh, look, that's how I did my one. Yeah. And that, really helpful to sort of break the ice a bit um dumb so stuff as well because most of my fracture clinics i spend the whole day talking about soccer and yeah. with, with, with with the season finished i've got nothing to talk to people about you know i'm, yeah. I'm, I'm completely hamstrung now <laughs> tell me what what positive or positives do you feel has come out of the covid pandemic Oh, I think um, I've been very impressed with the way the majority, both professionally and society-wide, the way people have fronted up to this. Um, you know, I think that people have behaved, not universally, obviously, but by and large, magnificently. You know, it's been very tough for, for this is, this is you know, society-wide rather than orthopedic-wide. You know, people have had to put up with a great deal and they've done it with, with, an awful lot of fortitude mm. you know i'm very lucky i mean you know i have got a job i've got you know i've got room i say so i haven't really i don't know what it's like to to, to be to, to have suffered 
yeah, from COVID lockdown. But the people you meet on a daily basis who clearly are in pretty tough situations, they're still, yeah, they're clapping every Thursday. They are optimistic. They're behaving well. They are, they are, yeah, they are, they are behaving in a very responsible, very, very good way. So that, that to me, after the sort of the Brexit thing, when I thought we were heading for a civil war, you know, it, it shows that actually there's, there's great good in the place. Um, from a professional point of view, I've, you know, I, I, we meet, I meet my colleagues six days a week on a Skype, on a Zoom call. Uh, we all know exactly what we're doing, where we are. We, we have been incredibly cohesive. We have, we have functioned very, very well as a department. It's been, it's been magnificent. And, you know, there's no question of uh, who's, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a real team, team approach, which, is, which, which is, is fantastic. We had that before, but it's just, it's just been very obvious in the last couple of months. And when you look back over this time, personally, over this time, what have you done over the past three months that you feel you hadn't done much of? before that because I've spent this time I've spent a lot more time appreciating spending time with my kids I'm cooking more I'm exercising more it's actually you know I've really taken a turn on this last three months now because I always want to look back at it and think this is what I did in 2020 what, what would you say you've done oh you know I've done um uh, yeah I've I've kept fit I've cleared my desk I've kept it clear I've done the 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 writing stuff that was always at the bottom of the pile I've got to the bottom, pretty much to the bottom of the things I thought I would never actually get round to doing. So I've, you know, I've, I've, I've finished stuff, I've finished some papers, I've, 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 I've finished some editing, you know, all the admin stuff. But most, the, for, for me, it's very, very curious because I retired four weeks before lockdown. And one of the things that I was worrying about was you know I was going to be there cast adrift while all of my colleagues were charging on doing really you know uh, exciting clinical things and and, and I just thought we'd be drifting back and as it happens we're all doing the same so it's just it's postponed my having to deal with the inevitability of, of, of partial retirement and for, and for that I'm very grateful. <laughs> Well, and we're very grateful to you for, you know, working with uh, the Biscos Education Committee. You know, I've said in quite a few episodes how impressed we were at the guidance that was given at a very early stage and how helpful they were in producing uh, patient information leaflets and videos for having mm-hmm. to move that. And that's really changed practice. And I feel that's something that I'm going to continue using yeah. even after this is all over. So thank you for that. And, you know, I think we'll let you get away. hope you enjoyed this episode with uh, yeah, Mr. Monsell. He, you know, has played a pivotal role in helping guide uh, us as North Peter community through this. And obviously, I hope you enjoyed his insights into how we feel we're going to recover, resume uh, the new normal service and sort of reconfigure our practice. Uh, please stay tuned and listen to our next episode where we're going to be talking to Lisa Hadfield-Law, uh, surgical educationist, as most of you will know. Um, about how this is going to affect training and we're going to also be talking about the potential of using virtual reality training modules in the future and then hopefully we'll be pivoting back to the PD podcast which I'm sure a lot of you have heard uh, biographies of um, some of the world-renowned surgeons in the pediatric orthopedic field and I'm sure Mr. Monsell will join us for an episode of that as well. Thank you again. Bye.